Gotta be honest with you, I grew up with Sega and not Nintendo. All my friends had Nintendo, so this movie was particularly painful for me. Brought up a lot of childhood things um, that I wished I had. So anyway, this message coming from a place of pain today, all right? Uh, for those of you who didn't see the Mario movie, let me give you a snapshot of it. Mario Brothers, the Super Mario Brothers movie follows uh, Mario and Luigi, who are uh, Brooklyn plumbers. They're brothers. They're sucked through a mysterious pipe uh, into the vibrant mushroom kingdom. Separated Mario teams up with Princess Peach and Toad, while Luigi falls into the clutches of the evil Bowser. Uh, Mario embarks on a quest to unite with his brother, save the princess and to stop Bowser from taking over uh, the kingdom. He faces fantastical creatures, solves puzzles, and utilizes the iconic power-ups like the super mushroom uh, to overcome obstacles. Throughout their journey, Mario and uh, Luigi discover their strengths and the importance of family and friendship and uh, meaningful relationships. They ultimately confront Bowser in a climactic battle using their newfound skills and teamwork to defeat him and restore peace to the Mushroom Galaxy. Today's message will be about defeating the Bowsers in your life. Just kidding. It won't be. Uh, and by way of reminder for us, here's what we're doing in this series. This is actually important for us to, uh, to keep coming back to this idea. Uh, we've been saying that there are ideas embedded inside each one of the stories that we watch, tell, or listen to. And I've said over the last couple of weeks uh, that stories are like that, they work a bit like that old Greek myth of the Trojan horse. You remember this myth where uh, inside the Trojan horse that is placed outside of the uh, city of Troy uh, hide these elite Greek soldiers and the residents of Troy thinking that this is a parting gift from their besieging enemy, welcome the Trojan horse in not knowing what is inside, right? And we've said each story has something far more powerful than elite soldiers inside of it has ideas, and those ideas seek to uh, break out and make our hearts and minds their home. Uh, each, every story works this way, and so our role is to get out and evaluate the Trojan horse to see what is inside, what is the idea embedded within that Trojan horse. That's part one. Today, what we're going to do is kind of add an additional element to that uh, to kind of give some uh, tools to think about how do we then evaluate those types of ideas? How do we look at a story and say, where does this story fit in, in this broader grid uh, as it seeks to make the main idea uh, it's home in our hearts and mind. How do we do that? This is the next step we're going to talk about uh, today. Now, this is not something that I have developed myself. I'm borrowing this from an organization called Stage and Story. Uh, they do a fantastic job of helping followers of Jesus make sense of the broader cultural stories that are around us today, right? And like we said, uh, the bottom line is that every story we consume, whether we realize it or not, uh, is something that we, we evaluate we, we take in this information. Sometimes uh, we just have a fleeting thought after we hear a story or watch a movie. It may be, wow, that was really boring. Uh, or, you know, oh, I really liked that. And, you know, we don't give much more thought to it than that. Or sometimes uh, we have, we, we, you know, we have a bit more intentionality going into our evaluation. But to evaluate a story to say, hey, this is what I think about this story or the idea inside of this story means uh, we will all have a standard by which we're measuring. 
like something we're measuring it against. We gotta compare it to something. Usually, uh, we evaluate stories based on our own worldview, how we understand the world to operate. Now, the point I'm trying to make is that as followers of Jesus, our standard, the, the thing we measure every story to is God's ultimate story. We hold up every story we encounter and ask the basic question, what does God have to say about this same theme or this same topic? Or, or how does the gospel offer a solution to the problem brought up in this story? Right, but this grid that I'm talking about today, it helps us compare this story to God's story. Are, are, are the stories in alignment? Are they in agreement? Are they in conflict? Do they critique one another? Think about it this way. There are basically three kinds of stories. Every story we encounter will fall into one of three categories. This is very broad. There are whole stories. There are broken stories. And then there are bent stories. Whole stories are essentially those types of stories in which good is actually good and evil is actually evil and good wins in the end. That's a whole story. A broken story are stories where good is good, evil is evil, but in the end, it seems like evil seems to win. This is a broken story. Bent stories are the ones that are very confusing and tricky to engage with. Bent stories are those kinds of stories where good is confused or mixed with evil. And you try and, it's hard to make sense of what really is good, what really is bad, and it's unclear who kind of wins in the end. You see this in a lot of movies uh, coming up where we are uh, taking the, um, those historic villains uh, in the uh, whole stories and trying to give them a backstory to humanize them a little bit more. A great example of this uh, is the movie The Joker that came out a couple years ago. Very dark film, and what it's trying to do is put as the main character someone who has been recognized for... Uh, uh, years as the, the, the arch villain in the Batman series. You try and humanize it. And what happens in a bent story is good and evil. The line between them gets blurred. It's tricky to see. Now, you can't easily put any one of these stories in the category and say, hey, this, the first category, the whole stories, those are the Christian stories and uh, the other ones are not. You can't, can't easily do this. But how we interact with each one of these stories, whether it's a whole story, a bent story, or a broken story, is going to lead us to ask some very different questions. It's going to produce some different things within us. A whole story, right, which good is good, evil is evil, good wins in the end, is going to lead us to celebrate and champion uh, the very idea. Because this is something that God celebrates and champions. Bent stories remember where good and evil are confused, will lead us to question and engage some of the most deeply held cultural beliefs in the surrounding world around us. Broken stories uh, where good is good, evil is evil, and evil wins in the end will lead us to empathize and long for a world made right. They're going to produce different things inside of us. So the first question we want to ask when we look at the Super Mario's Brothers stories, what, what, what kind of story is this? What kind of story is this? And, you know, to cut things short a little bit today, I want to make the point that I believe the Super Mario Brothers story is a whole story. It's a whole story because at its core, it is a story about deeply meaningful relationships. I mean, it's hard to think of a more iconic duo uh, than Mario and Luigi, right? 
You almost cannot think of one without the other, which I think is, I think is powerful in itself because every single one of us wants that kind of relationship with another person, don't we? Like every Mario wants their Luigi, right? Every Thelma wants uh, Louise. Every Doc wants a Marty. Every Kirk wants a Spock. Every Shrek wants a donkey eventually, right? And while there are a whole bunch of different threads I think we could pull in, in looking at this movie, I want to spend our time thinking about, uh, the one I want to think about is the theme of relationships, which at first sounds basic and a little bland, like can't we get something more meaningful from here? But the more we look at this, the more we'll see that there, there is a reason why each and every one of us, we find ourselves drawn to other people. That it is a good and right thing for us to pursue meaningful relationships with other people. And when we don't, we, there, there are consequences to that. It's a part of how God has wired us to thrive as human beings. So as we do the work of comparing the Super Mario's bro story to God's story, we will see that there is something incredibly powerful uh, about the meaningful relationships in our lives. And my hope is that we walk away with a better understanding of what it means to be human, what it means to be in community, and what it means for us to enjoy and exercise the gift of meaningful relationships around us. Now, just a heads up that this message is going to feel a little bit different than how we would normally approach uh, a message here at LifePoint. Normally, we're going to stick in a passage, a passage of scripture, and just kind of, you know, talk about that passage. We're going to jump around a bit more than normal today, just because of the nature of, uh, of, of this theme that we're looking at. But first, let me pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the time we have together today. You know what each one of us needs as we come into this place this morning. You know uh, what is going on uh, beneath uh, the surface that no one else can see. You know that some of us walk in here and we have uh, very healthy relationships set up around us. And we can easily rejoice thanking you for the gift of relationship that you've given us. And yet there are others of us uh, that have maybe one, two, or many relationships that just seem to quickly turn toxic in our lives. And it's a point of frustration or uh, even a point of pain. And so Lord, we pray today that you, uh, by your Holy Spirit, would speak directly to each one of us. You do more than what my words can do but that you, uh, by your spirit, would continue to preach to us long after we leave this place today, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you'd confront any lies that we may be believing. Lord, that you would show us a, a better story, the Christian story, and that would help us to make sense of the relationships we have around us. And so, Lord, we trust you to do that work. Lord, we're also grateful that we uh, are here gathering, knowing that there are other gospel-preaching churches right now that are meeting to exalt your name uh, and to worship Jesus. And so we pray specifically this morning for uh, Worthington Christian just up the street. Lord, we pray blessing on them, that you would meet them as they gather uh, uh, this morning. 
Lord, that you'd richly provide for their needs uh, and that that would be a place for generations where there is true gospel uh, transformation taking place in our community. Lord, we thank you for the friendship we have with them in the gospel. Uh, Father, we are grateful for your kindness to us. We trust you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible with you, why don't you open up to the Old Testament book of Genesis. We're going to start here, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start right at the beginning, Genesis chapter 2. Starting in verse 15, it'll be on the screen behind me. It says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "Uh, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. All right, as we're getting started at this, uh, with this conversation about relationships, I think it's helpful for us to look at our own origin stories for a moment. Uh, both Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 tell the story of God creating, right? O- only from different perspectives. They're not trying to share two conflicting accounts. They're trying to add more color. Genesis chapter 2 adds more detail, more color to the story of God's creating humanity. It shows us essential elements of what it means to be human. If you look at verse 15 again, right? God creates man, humanity, places him in a garden to work it and to keep it. In other words, uh, that he has created humanity with a job to do, right? This is, this is a part of uh, our purpose as human beings, that we were made uh, to find fulfillment in work, which parenthetically does not mean fulfillment in getting paid for work. No, the idea here is that we were made to contribute to God's created world, Part of what it means to be human is that we have meaningful contribution to the world around us, and and that shows up in our work, whatever that may look like, whether or not we get paid for it. But look at what comes next in verse 18, just the first part of verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone, which I I think really often gets kind of put in this uh, marriage bubble, which I understand because that's what kind of happens next is God creates uh, a woman for Adam and, and they get married. But let's pause here for a moment before we jump to the rest of the passage, because I think that this is an essential uh, attribute of what it means for us to be human, that we were made for relationship. We were made for relationship. I like the way that this is worded in the original language uh, of the book of Genesis, which is Hebrew and not English. That word good uh, is the Hebrew word tov, which adds uh, a bit more vibrance to this phrase. It's a word that means uh, right or the way it should be or as it should be. And so for God to say that it is not tov, it is not good for us to be alone, is at the same time for him to say that it is not the way that we are made to experience life. It is not right to be alone, right? And this is true, by the way, if you are an introvert or an extrovert. I am very much an introvert, very much an introvert, which is sometimes challenging in my line of work. It makes it a little hard sometimes. My wife, Courtney, she is a fantastic extrovert. She loves being with people, fills her cup. 
she has what uh, people call FOMO, the fear of missing out. Anybody have the fear of missing out? Okay, I self-diagnosed, I have JOMO, which is the joy of missing out. Okay, I love, I love missing out on things. <laughs> but I also know that too much of introvert time is not a good, is not a good thing for me. Okay, it's not a good look. Uh, I think I've shared this before, but uh, not long after Courtney and I got married, uh, you need to know, for me, one of my creative outlets is cooking. I love, like, you know, exploring the culinary arts. And Courtney knew that about me when we got married. She'd come home all the time, and I would have made something, you know, wild. It wasn't necessarily good, (laughs) but it was messy, which is the sign of a, a creative endeavor, okay? So one of the first times she leaves home uh, for a week, she came back and I've like gone three steps back on that evolutionary chart, you know? Uh, I've got like this crazy thick beard, the windows. She's like, did you even open the blinds here? Like, no, it's been, I'm really sad and tired. And um, she's like, what did you eat? So I had, I had uh, salami uh, bagels, or I had salami on everything bagels for every meal for five days. That's a lot of bagels, okay? That's a lot of salami. That's not good for me, right? So if I lean into this introvert side of me, it's not good. And it's a uh, small picture of uh, that reality for all of us. None of us thrive when we are alone. None of us thrive. See, what Genesis 2 is telling us is that there is something about the way that we have been created that that means we are dependent. We are absolutely dependent on some kind of relationship with others and that it extends beyond more than just a biological or social impulse that has developed to put us around other people. This is why we can watch a movie uh, like the Super Mario Bros., we can watch Mario and Luigi and, uh, or plug in any other dynamic duo that you want and, and each one of us can say at some level, I want that. I, I want that kind of relationship. It's because that desire, that, that impulse, that need has been hardwired into us. In the Christian story, we recognize that we were made for relationships. That's something we can look at this movie and celebrate and say, yes, it's true. We want that. In the spring, we're going to be uh, jumping into a six-week series. I'm really excited about this. Six-week series where we talk about uh, all these different kinds of relationships. Because to say that we want relationships, we want to be around other people, uh, also comes with some baggage. Like there's some complexity being in relationship with other people that's hard to navigate sometimes. It's not all rainbows and unicorns. And so we're going to take six weeks after Easter to dig into all these different kinds of relationships that we have and the complexity around each one of them. Really excited for that series. This, this, imagine this is just kind of setting up that series we're going to get to in, in, in a few weeks. But here's, here's one thing we do know about relationships. Here's one thing we do know, that it, it, it means to be in relationship is more than just being around other people. It's more than just proximity to other human beings. We crave a kind of relationship with others that has a certain identifying feature, a certain mark. We crave to be around others. We crave relationships marked by love. And I'll be honest, when I, you know, I threw up a little bit in my mouth when I wrote that sentence when I was uh, writing this sermon, because it just, it sounds so cliche. 
But the more I think about it, and the more I've reflected on this, the more I'm convinced that we cannot talk about relationships, specifically meaningful relationships that we were made for, without talking about the ethic that surrounds these kinds of relationships, at least in the Christian story. Like, if we're going to celebrate what Mario and Luigi's story is talking about, then we need to do this in a way that is girded by the ethic that Jesus celebrates in relationships. And so we can start with Genesis chapter two and, and, and say not only is it not good for us to be alone, but that uh, it is the way it's supposed to be. It is tove when we are in relationship with others, but we also have to talk about what governs those kinds of relationships, especially the most meaningful and important ones. So again, if you have your Bible with you, flip to the other side of your Bible, the book of First John. It's almost at the very end of your Bibles, the book of First. John will be in chapter four. This is one of three letters uh, we have in the New Testament written by one of Jesus' disciples, John, uh, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, who is not John the Baptist. I know it's a little confusing, but we'll talk about that later. In this letter, uh, we have some of the most concentrated and potent teachings uh, on the idea of love in the entire Bible. First John chapter four. First John chapter four. Starting verse seven, it says this, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And the reason we need to talk about this is because we cannot just have uh, a surface level conversation about relationships in general. Painfully, we are familiar with the types of relationships uh, that are not governed by love or that have a twisted view of what love looks like in the relationship. And so what we want to do here as we talk about these relationships is hold up uh, what God says about uh, the, the most meaningful and in-depth relationships we can have, what governs them, and you know, kind of contrast that to what we so often encounter outside of God's ideal. Right, and in this passage, in 1 John 4, we find packaged together uh, how the ethic of loving one another is to flow out of followers of Jesus. We're going to work backwards in this passage because I think that makes the most sense of it, uh, but it's summarized well in verse 11. You can look back there, verse 11, uh, if or since God has loved us, we also ought to love one another. Right, meaning that as followers of Jesus, right, we understand that God has first extended his love towards us. To say, since God loved us, uh, is to say, because he first loved us, we also ought to extend love to one another. Now, how does this work? Verse 10, 
right? This is an interesting observation about uh, the way John organizes this idea here. Verse 11, since God loved us, right? So that make, makes the question come up, how does he love us? Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, right? And what John is saying is that the primary picture of God's love is first seen in the sending of Jesus on our behalf. He uses a word that we we don't really use anymore today, saying uh, that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. You can impress your friends and family by a definition uh, later on if you want. They'll know you're very smart. Uh, uh, Propitiation is a word that means to appease, or it means to, to take away anger or to absorb anger, which I think is a pretty remarkable idea to say that Jesus is the propitiation or the one who absorbs anger on our behalf, right? Because it is the remarkable idea that while God is rightly and justly grieved over sin and brokenness of humanity, out of his love for us, he has sent his son to take on that anger. He has sent his son to take on our injustice, uh, to take on our brokenness as if it were his own. You see, the very story of the cross is Jesus willingly stepping into our place for our sin, taking on the death that we have earned for our failure to live the way that we've been created to live. You see, the, the point is God's love is a costly kind of love. It's a costly kind of love. So when we look at 1 John 4, 11, right, beloved, if God has so loved us, we ought to love one another. We, we see that it was a, he loved us with a costly kind of love. You might say a sacrificial kind of love. This is a love that is offered to his enemies. This is a love that is not offered strictly to people who have already put their life together, who have already said, God, I, I've done X, Y, and Z. Now, now I am in a lovable position for you. No, this is, this is something that is extended to his enemies. It is a transformational kind of love that, that cannot but change the one who experiences it. This is the way that God has loved us, which is why John starts this whole passage the way he does, saying in verse 7 and 8, Right, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. It is out of him. It flows from him. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. See, our ability to have love in our most meaningful relationships flows from the very character of God himself, who is love. Now, we need to be careful here for a moment. And we're going to come back to this in this series that I talked about in a few weeks. See, interestingly enough, we live in a cultural moment where we tend to flip that last line. Uh, we don't necessarily talk about God as love. Uh, we, we, we act and believe and live as if love is God. Right today, and our, our entire culture is built around the unspoken rule that love is God. It's the greatest virtue. It's the greatest right. And it's why uh, to, to seemingly deny someone their right to love is the greatest social transgression we can possibly be guilty of. Some of the hardest conversations we have today in our world around us about our faith uh, is that it constantly and uh, abruptly collides with some issue about love. 
Now, John is very careful to say this. Not that love is God, but that God is love. It's part of his very nature. It's part of who he is. And the point is, our capacity to extend love in our relationships comes from the fact that this is an essential part of God himself. And this goes all the way back to our original discussion about how we were created. We were created to be in relationship. One of the bedrock ideas in in the book of Genesis is that we were created uh, in God's image or his likeness. And by virtue of being created in the likeness of God, we have the capacity to extend and receive love because it's part of the very nature of the creator himself. And so this is a long way of saying, you see, God's story shows us that not only are we uh, beings who need relationship, more specifically, we are beings who need relationship governed by love, a sacrificial kind of love, a self-giving kind of love, a non-conditional kind of love. And when you become a follower of Jesus, this is the kind of environment we are invited into that's supposed to be embodied in what we call the local church. Certainly, we do not always nail it. We do not uh, do this perfectly. But the ideal is is that a church community, a church family, is those who have uh, come together to model their life uh, after the life, work, and pattern of Jesus who sacrificially laid down his rights for the sake of those uh, who seek to do the same for one another. Which is the very point John makes again in verse 11. If God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, in our relationships, here's the bottom line. This is the MO for followers of Jesus. It should be the thing, love to be the thing that marks our relationship with our community. It should be the thing that drives our interactions with both those inside and outside the church. You see this kind of put on, a, uh, on, on display in the movie uh, Super Mario Brothers where there is a strange sense in which uh, this is a bit of a, Spoiler alert, although I don't think it'll spoil much. Um, Bowser, the, the villain in the story, kind of has a thing for, for Princess Peach, okay? Uh, and he, he, he is uh, trying to uh, capture her because he thinks this is part of him, his greater attempt to gain power in the entire kingdom. And I think what's important here is to recognize uh, is that th- there is something that calls itself love, but actually seeks to be much more like manipulation. It seeks to take hold and use uh, another person for its own advantage, for the promotion of itself, which is what you end up seeing in Bowser's affection or love for Princess Peach. He wants to get what is the best return for his investment. He wants to be the one who's on top, and she seems to be a means to that kind of end. See how remarkably different this is from the picture of love that, G- that John is talking about in chapter four. But this is not a uh, sacrificial love. The, the, the Bowser's love is a selfish kind of love. And friends, I think we need to be very careful about how this can easily weed its way into our hearts and minds in our own community. 
as if we're going to be in a position very soon uh, as a, a church community where we're going to find uh, some of us on opposite sides of very important conversations uh, going around our culture right now. I mean, we're in an election year, right? So what happens when you find out someone in your life group is voting differently than you do? What happens when you uh, find yourself looking on someone's social media page and you're like, this person is nuts. <laughs> but they go to your church. How do you, I mean, I don't know, maybe you can avoid them. Try not, not to serve with them or something like that. No, you see, there is an ethic of, it's just, it, it's almost annoying. This ethic of love that crops up again and says, no, uh, you need to be with this person. Uh, you need to continue showing and extending a kind of sacrificial, costly love to yourself. Why? Because this is how Jesus has first loved you. See, the ideal Christian community is not the kind of community where everybody agrees with one another. It's not. That, that, that is a myth, and if you find that community, do not join it, because you will mess it up. <laughs> Let them be. No, a, a, a true and genuine community needs to have people, who, you need to have some friction every now and then. You need to have some sparks that fly because that lets you know that you have united around something other than your political ideology. You have united around something other than your taste in music. That you have united around something other than uh, you, your, your, I don't know, your, your, your what preaching style you like. No, you've, you've united yourselves around uh, the gospel. There, there needs to be some friction and that friction produces more and more love in our context. So I think uh, you, we have to think about love as something that is exercised. It's almost like a muscle, right? And, and this is what makes it challenging uh, because we want to retreat to spaces where we don't have to exercise that muscle very much, where it's just easy to love other people, but that's not what life in a, a church community is like. It's not. We're going to be around people that are hard to love, but as we continue the act of serving, as we continue the act of caring, as we continue the act of showing a sacrificial, costly kind of love, we, we are finding our capacity to love increase. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, a couple weeks ago, actually er earlier this week, we had some uh, uh, friends over at our house, and uh, it was you know late in the evening, about eight o'clock at night, and in our basement, the the, um, the kids were playing down there, and all of a sudden, uh, one of them runs up and said, there's, "There's water spraying all over the basement," which is a homeowner's like horrifying to hear that news. I'm like, "Are we at are we at our house? Shoot, we are. Yeah, it's my problem." And so we go downstairs and trying to figure out, like, it's true. There's just water spraying out of a pipe in the basement. And, you know, I don't, I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not Mario. I don't know how to fix this problem. <laughs> uh, so I get on the phone with uh, someone who I think might have some guidance for me to say, like, hey, try this, do that. And uh, someone who knows a lot more about plumbing and things like that than I do. And I called him and said, hey, man, this just, just happened. Do you have a plumber you use? What should I do? And he's like, don't worry about it. I'll be right there. Dropped what he was doing on a Tuesday night when he's got family stuff going on, when he's got his own life to worry about, dropped what he was doing, shows up at our house, spends an hour working on our pipe to get it fixed. 
And as, as, a, as someone who's like a recent transplant to uh, Columbus, where I'd like, I don't have a lot of those kinds of relationships yet. We don't have the like, hey, can you drop everything and come help me solve this problem right now? For someone to show up and say, hey, don't worry about it. I got you covered. I care about you. You know what that communicated to me and my family? And we're, we're in a space where, where people are practicing a sacrificial kind of love. But that cost their family something for them to be here, to show up. That that is powerful in a community where we begin to say, I'm going to love you even though it costs me something to do that. That's the kind of community, friends, that we want to be a part of. Like I said, it it takes exercise. We have to work at this. I am convinced uh, that this does not happen easily. It does not just automatically roll into these types of relationships where they just develop without intentionality. I'm, you know, I'm in my 30s now, moving to a new city. I've learned it, it's hard to make friends, right? It's hard to make those kinds of relationships if you're not intentional because they will not just happen. That's why at LifePoint, we have a mechanism for this. Not, it, it's not a friendship mechanism, but it is a community mechanism to, to get us into community with one another where we can exercise uh, the, the gift of love and experience relationship. That, that mechanism is called life groups. This is not something we just have uh, to uh, train and equip people with more biblical knowledge. No, this is the space where you can be in a community of other people who know you, who know what you're wrestling with. They, they can be your phone call when you don't know what to do with the next step. But this, this is your tribe. These are your people. This is, these can be some of the greatest gifts of relationship God can entrust you with. That's, that's the heartbeat behind life groups is that we would be in community with one another. It's amazing as you read through the New Testament how many times you find this phrase repeated about 50 times with a command uh, that we do something with or for one another. We bear one another's burdens. We share with one another. We encourage one another. We support one another. We love one another. Friends, we, we live out this. We experience this type of relationship in the context of life groups. If you're not in a life group, I, I would heavily, heavily encourage you. Take a moment. On the screen behind me, there, there's a QR code. You can scan that and just fill out an interest form to say, hey, I'm interested in learning more about this type of community. And it will not happen overnight. Like you, you, won't, you, you won't have the, you know, your, your go to, you won't find your Luigi just by joining a life group and attending, you know, one time. It may not happen in the first term. It may not happen uh, in, in the first couple months. But you will find as you show up in this space, with a desire to practice the very ethic that Jesus said should govern our relationships, that John puts forward for us, that we love one another as we have first been loved, you will find that these types of relationships are some of the greatest gifts God entrusts with us for our care and for our good. Friends, if you are not in a life group, If you're not in a life group now, I'd encourage you, take a moment, scan this QR code, have a conversation, maybe it was with your spouse. 
You want to know more about what that looks like? Come talk with me. Come talk with Jason after the uh, service today. We'd love to help you take that next step. Why? Because, friends, we were made for relationships. Made to be around one another. We were made uh, for relationships marked by love. And we can find that, we can experience that, we can grow in that in the context of life groups. Let me pray for us. We'll finish up today. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you that before we even open up our mouths to ask, you know what we need. Lord, you know some of the deepest longings of our heart. You know that some of us uh, have spent way too long in uh, a self-imposed exile. We have distanced ourselves. And that we may be in a season now where more than ever, we need to exercise and experience the gift of relationships marked by love. Oh, so I pray that uh, you'd continue to prompt us if we need that. Keep, uh, keep stirring something within us even if it's just a curiosity right now about what that might look like. Oh, Father, we pray that you would, long after we leave this place, continue to speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Father, we do thank you. We trust you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.